You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. My guest on this episode of The Spear is Brian Kitching. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. So just for listeners, can you give a little bit of background about yourself and, and kind of what brought you into the Army and when? Sure. So I, uh, I enlisted in the, uh, in the Army uh, back in 2000, um, and, and I enlisted as a forward observer. It's uh, a... Uh, 13 Fox. Um, and my first duty station was the 101st. Um, I d deployed to Afghanistan early in 2002. And then shortly thereafter, uh, did uh, what's known as the green to gold program uh, in the army, uh, transitioning essentially from enlisted to becoming an officer. Um, and then commissioned in 2005 as a um, as an infantry officer and, and served in uh, a number of um, airborne and uh, ranger units. Um, commanded uh, in 3rd Infantry Division uh, as a company commander and then uh, returned to the to uh, the 75th Ranger Regiment as a as a major and uh, and now I work uh, work in the in the Pentagon uh, as my current assignment so you were a forward observer in the artillery enlisted and then when you uh, when you commissioned you went into the infantry is that is that what you wanted to do it is um, it um, you know, just, just as, as you go through and, and, um, as I, as I was enlisted, um, you just see the types of leadership experiences that, um, you know, in, in my role as a forward observer, you're, you're sort of right next to, uh, typically an infantry platoon leader, uh, in some cases, a field artillery officer, but you, you just look at the, the responsibility that they have. Um, and, and it's it's pretty remarkable uh, what what they're involved with at such a young age. And so coming out of uh, coming out of college, it, it was sort of a natural fit. Okay. Um, did you deploy while you were enlisted? I sure did. So in March of 2002, uh, deployed. I was in the Third Brigade, 101st. And so this was back when you had uh, you still had the Devardi, and then you had you know you had the the the, the brigades. And so we would do our training, um, mm -hmm. in the artillery unit, and then you would bolt on to the training required for the infantry unit. So I, I deployed with alpha company three, one, eight, seven infantry, uh, to, to Kandahar, um, in 2002. Uh, and, and really it was the, the, the beginning of the establishment of Kandahar sort of spending days, filling sandbags, some, some very basic patrolling, but, but, um, 
nothing uh, as substantive as what would happen in, in follow-on years. Okay. And so we're going to talk about a story from a uh, 2012 deployment. Uh, but first, I want to ask you, that deployment you were in, uh, Panjwa District in Kandahar Province, did you, so were you at CAF at Kandahar Airfield during that deployment? We, we started there. You had to do some 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 basic initial um, counter IED training, kind of learning um, as as uh, many know, uh, Kandahar, uh, particularly in some of these uh, far flung districts, you, you deal with uh, high levels of of IED belts and threats, and so um, you had to get some initial training there. But we spent um, our entire nine months based out of a a company level uh, cop uh, combat okay. outpost called Sperwingar, and so if you if you uh, are familiar with this area. This is sort of a Soviet area, built up large piece of terrain there in Panjoy District. And a number of elements have, have worked out of there. Canadian Special Forces units. Um, there's a the relatively well-known uh, book called Lions of Kandahar that, that sort of mm-hmm. so, um, situated around this piece of terrain. So our company was there, um, uh, about, about 135 of us. Okay. Um, so I guess the the reason that I ask is because you mentioned you were at at Kandahar at the airfield in 2002, and then you at least saw it um, and spent you know a few days or or weeks there over the course of the deployment sure. in 2012. How much did it change? Because you know for anybody who was there later, I was there in 2011, and it was I mean there was a Tim Hortons for the Canadians that were there. <laughs> yeah. that, you know that, I mean it was it was what we think of when we think of like these big forward operating bases with PXs and oh, yeah. and and everything. But how different was that from when you were there in 2002? It was in- incredibly different. I mean, it's night and day. And, you know, I'd been back there as a Ranger platoon leader in 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, uh, probably 2009 and 10. Um, and I mean, we're talking uh, TGI Fridays and all sorts yeah. of restaurants, you know, things that just would blow your mind um, in terms of what you know, what existed there on Kandahar. So absolutely. And I think, you know, I've been back to Kandahar since then, 2016 and 17, um, et cetera. And I mean, it's, it, there's not a whole lot in Kandahar anymore. A, a lot of that stuff has gone away. So it's, it's pretty remarkable, you know, sort of the, the arc of that place over the yeah, years. Yeah. And, and never many people that have, you know, four deployments there over the course of 15 years and could kind of watch its development. And they definitely, when you were back in, you know, I'm sure by 2009, certainly by 2012, you weren't filling sandbags that were you the way you were in 2002. <laughs> no, not, not, uh, not at all. I mean, certainly a, uh, a very different, uh, different kind of fight, you know, certainly as a, as a Ranger platoon leader, it's, it's sort of a different look in terms of the types of missions you're doing and the assets and resources that you have at your disposal. Um, mm-hmm. as in, um, as a sort of a, conventional infantry company commander the 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 day patrolling and and what we'll see is the, these things aren't aren't unique to this company my fellow company commanders were dealing with this uh as well as as did many others is just the slog of of you know eight hour patrols and you know stepping on ieds and, and dealing with all this stuff i mean it was um a little bit um uh quite a bit different than what we experienced, uh, in, in previous times. Okay. So let's talk about that, uh, that 2012 deployment then, uh, you were a company commander, you said? That's right. That's right. In, uh, in what unit? 
Uh, this is Bravo Company uh, 164 Armor, and so this was, uh, you know, a, a two sort two comp two tank companies and two uh, infantry comp mechanized infantry companies. Now, what's interesting about this deployment is my, my company and one other company from our unit, we are actually attached to a striker brigade for the entire deployment, and so I was I fell underneath one two three infantry out of JBLM in Washington. And so um, this company I was commanding, Bravo Company, they, they're called the Bayonets. Uh, we, we uh, you know, we had not trained with this unit, you know, through the training cycle. And so this was a um, sort of working with a new team, incredible uh, battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Trey Rutherford. Uh, but we're, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's that's kind of where we where we stood at that point. Was that a challenge to bring your company into this, you know, unfamiliar unit and then basically right at the time when you deploy? Yeah, it, it, um, it, it was a bit challenging. And so, uh, I actually took command, um, and, uh, in November of, uh, 2011 and uh, about three weeks after I took command, we were notified that, that we were going to deploy in March. And so you can imagine with Thanksgiving, Christmas, um, et cetera, the training to get to that point, uh, to, to where we would be, uh, you know, in my estimation, ready for a fight such as Panjway, uh, you know, third infantry division did not have much experience in Afghanistan, certainly a phenomenal unit, uh, uh with, with tons of experience in Iraq, but, but very little experience in, uh, in Afghanistan. And my, my concern was we, we didn't have a whole lot of dismounted experience, um, not a whole lot of focus on functional style fitness. And so that, that became, uh, that became my, uh, my focus. And so we went to NTC, uh, uh, shortly after the new year, um, and the battalion commander, uh, who, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rutherford from one, two, three actually flew to NTC and huddled with us and our team, uh, while we're at NTC and sort of unpacked what he thought the fight was going to look like. And, and my battalion commander from third ID was uh, very, very gracious and, and allowed us to, to sort of connect with him um, ahead of the deployment. And so, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, challenging, but, but getting to connect with him early um, ahead of the deployment, I thought was, was, um, was great to be able to do that and, and pretty critical to, to kind of see how he was thinking about the fight and how we would plug into the battalion. And what was, how was he thinking about the fight? So you, you said you deployed in, in March, 2012. Uh, what was, when you get there, you get on the ground, what was your overall overarching sort of sense of what the, what the mission was? So in, in Panjway, um, you had, um, at the time you, you had a sort of the, the unit, uh, that was there, um, and it, it may have been a function of uh, the the Afghan Army unit that that was partnered, but there wasn't a uh, a strong focus on um, affecting the area uh, much further than about a kilometer um, outside of uh, surrounding Sparwangar. And so, what uh, what we were uh, attempting to do is expand that space uh, beyond. Uh, that area to create space for additional security, additional economic projects for the local government. Uh, they started to try to tackle some of the 
the uh, Poppy production, and, and we we all know kind of how that went. But mm-hmm. we were we were really trying to def- uh, get some expansion going, uh, defeat some of the IED cells that were in the area, um, and so we started, uh, you know, stitching together these larger scale clearance operations. And uh, Colonel Rutherford would put these things together every few weeks, in addition to the company level uh, operations that we would be doing uh, on a daily basis. So you were doing pretty regular battalion missions. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, so we were. Uh, we probably did. I'd say over the course of that nine months, six, probably six to ten uh, battalion level operations. But you know, we were two and three patrols um, every day uh, with, with, you know, with the platoons that were, uh, were there. Okay. So you had, did you have your entire company uh, at the same cop? We did. And so the, the construct um, there was, I had two infantry platoons and I actually had a, uh, a tank platoon as well. And so a little bit smaller uh, group of uh, group of folks there, but, but uh, you know, incredibly sharp and and um, you know, just just very very uh, tactically sound. Um, not not to say that you know, not to say that our other uh, armor elements are not. But I had not I had not had much experience at all. Um, you know, prior to getting to Third Infantry Division with uh, uh, you know with with armor formations, but uh, they were just uh, absolutely incredible. And did you use the tanks much? We we didn't, and so there were no there were no um, essentially no mounted operations. I mean, we would use them on uh, for basic resupply between Cop Spearwangar and another larger base uh, called Zangabad, which is where the uh, further to the west, which is where the battalion headquarters was, or uh, a base further uh, to the. East Masamgar, uh, that that was the brigade headquarters, and we would get resupply. But all of our operations, uh, f- for uh, probably, I would say ninety five percent of those were dismounted and just uh, you know just kind of fighting for every you know twenty five to hundred meters. Okay, so let's talk about you know there's there's one particular story you're gonna you're gonna share a little bit. When did this uh, I guess event take place? So, so this particular event um, took place on May 30th uh, of that year of 2012. And so you'd been uh, in country for a couple months. Yeah, a couple months. So about month two of a nine-month deployment, and we were conducting one of these multi-day uh, battalion-level dismounted clearances west through what's called the Horn of Panjway. So the populated area of Panjway is it, it's shaped kind of shaped like one of those ancient-style horns. And so we were we were doing this to disrupt some of those IED cells that that were that I described earlier that were operating in the the uh, uh, in the area. Um, I talked a little bit about being attached to to one two three infantry, um, and again mm-hmm. I think that was um, important to connect with uh, Colonel Rutherford ahead of the deployment. And so as we were um, uh, clearing again, we're clearing west, um, so to to our south. Uh, we're sort of bounded by what's known as the Registan Desert. Yep. Uh, Bravo Company 123 Infantry was a few kilometers to our north. So bounded by Bravo Company to the north, to the south, you have the Registan Desert. Um, 
within my company, I had two platoons as part of this operation. First platoon was directly to our south, just, you know, you know, further north than the Registan Desert. And third platoon was sort of the main thrust, uh, you know, continuing to move west. I was moving with third platoon. We also okay. had uh, elements of the Afghan National Army police and the civil order police traveling with us um, in the riverbed next to the desert. I had my XO along with some um, resupply, some, some basic resupply vehicles so that, you know, as we moved along, we would, uh, you know, we would be able to get that resupply as, as required. And how many days was the mission intended to be? So this was going to be about a week, a uh, week clearance. And so this, uh, May 30th was day three of that clearance. Um, the, the day started incredibly hot. Um, I, I'd say by eight o'clock, the, the temperature, it was approaching a hundred degrees and, and I, I could really start to see the impacts that it was having on the guys. And, and I just want to describe the, the uniform during that time. And folks who, who served in Kandahar and in the South during this time will cringe when I, when I start talking about this, but you know, we had those, those Kevlar diapers and I'm not talking about the, yeah. the flap that came down. I'm talking about the, you know, the diaper that goes underneath yep. and clips on the side, but it wasn't just the, the, the diapers. It was the tights that went with them. So you had to wear the, yeah. the black tights underneath and just really uncomfortable. Um, and certainly everyone was, was dealing with that. Um, so where we were in the operation, just to give you context on the on the first two days. So the day one's clearance began with uh, one of the Afghan National Army. So ANA, we'll go uh, start using that from here on. The ANA stepping on an IED and and was an amputee while he was trying to clear a gray putt. So gray putt, so sort of a rectangular structure where they they'll bring the grapes in to to dry them uh, while they're they're making raisins. Mm-hmm. Re- receive sporadic contact throughout the day, establish the patrol base that night. No, no, uh, no other issues. Day two took pretty heavy contact as we continued to move West. The enemy began fi- fighting from structures. They, they actually con- fi- uh, fought from structures with families inside. Not a typical tactic I was seeing at the time. Um, at the end of the night, while we were establishing our patrol base, we took contact again um, small, small arms, nothing heavy. Uh, but that time it was kind of from more of a built up era. We were able to get helicopters on station. Um, some of the Kiowas enemy broke contact. So what are the patrol bases that when you, if you're out for seven days, what does it look like on a typical night? Yeah. So, so the way that we would do it is we would work with the, the, uh, Afghan, uh, police or, uh, ANA to secure a structure really kind of on the outskirts of a village, one of the ab- abandoned structures. Um, and, and we would, we would, you know, establish our security plan, um, all night and, um, you know, establish there. And so, um, that's, that's how we would do it. Um, if, if there wasn't really a structure available, we'd, we'd, uh, you know, we would, we would move, um, just onto the outskirts and just, just kind of, uh, orient ourselves on on external of some of the structures so that, you know, we would not be in an open area. Okay. And you're both, both platoons together. That's right. That's right. And, and so first platoon in some cases, if you know, the, the footprint would be such that, um, 
you know, that it would be a little bit too large to, to go all in one spot. So we would uh, push them further to the South. Um, and, uh, and just the geometry of how the structures were going. I mean, we're talking over the course of a week. I mean, you're clearing hundreds of structures with the Afghans. I mean, it, it sometimes it kind of pulls you apart as you're clearing. Okay. And so go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say, so, so now we're at day three. Yep. So day, day three began like the others, you know, we're finding, IEDs. And so we've got engineers with us as well, like a couple of combat engineers that are uh, working with the Afghans. So we're, they're, they're finding IEDs and conducting controlled detonations of each. At, at one point, we've, we move into a relatively open area, uh, sort of the, the connective trails uh, between, uh, between villages. And so we, we come up on a what's sort of a low wall and in the distance, you have a couple of gray putts, um, a couple of hundred meters, and then a tree line, and then kind of the next village. And I want to describe very briefly how, based on the IED threat, you had to move. And so you're moving somewhat in a file because you, based on the IED threat, the person who has the, you know, the the mine detecting device at the time, it was the mine hound or the chia uh, mm-hmm. or I can't remember, there was a third model that we used. You had to follow behind that person, generally speaking. Now, if you had an open area where it, it would have been difficult for them to place IEDs, you may be able to take a little bit more risk. The The engineer uh, had identified an IED at a gray putt about 100 meters from our formation, and, and he was getting uh, preparing to, to conduct a controlled detonation. I moved up to that, that short wall with my fire support officer, Medic, uh, my intel specialist, my RTO, to get an update from my my third platoon uh, leader. His name's Jimmy McGrath. The as uh, soon as the engineer conducted the tr- controlled detonation, we immediately began receiving small arms and RPG fire. But it was it was more directed to uh, one of the clearing elements just to our south, and they were that that element. Our friendly element was masked by a small grouping of trees. A rifleman, PFC McNeil, he was wounded uh, with some shrapnel from a rocket-propelled grenade, um, and and he had essentially shrapnel shrapnel to the neck. We requested uh, close combat attack aircraft, so helicopters to come in as well as initiated the medevac. And so, you've got McNeil down there. They're go- they're going to move him back to where we are, essentially a low wall and kind of an open area to. Um, to bring the medevac in. We brought a fire team up there to start adjusting uh, 40 millimeter grenade rounds from our M203s and 320s, the grenade launchers, and the contact ceased temporarily. And so now we've got McNeil making his way back. We're, we're trying to get the HLZ established. The CCA checks on station and we, we direct the aircraft, hey, there's no contact. Let's get you... Uh, situated to escort the medevac while they're inbound. So do you know where the contact was coming from? So you have a pretty precise location. So the contact was coming generally from the West, but we couldn't pinpoint which structures it was coming from initially. Um, And so during that time with the lull, um, McNeil made his way back up and our, our senior uh, medic doc, uh, uh, Brandon Rudy starts uh, patching McNeil up near that wall. So the contact subsided, we began to reconsolidate and adjust the security near this low wall. 
And I was standing at the time between the military working dog handler, his name Sean Brazos, and Jimmy McGrath, who was the third platoon leader. And that's when the next uh, contact began. And, and this time uh, was quite, uh, quite a bit more significant and more, uh, more dialed in. So how long between when the first contact sort of broke off and, and when it kicks off again, it was probably about, uh, I would say, um, about maybe five, maybe five to 10 minutes. Okay. But Um, the, the medevac bird had not, had not arrived. It had not arrived yet. It had not. Um, so this next, um, contact was, uh, much heavier and the, the, the positions had, had come closer based on how quickly the rounds uh, were hitting and how close they were. So both Sean and Jimmy, so the dog handler and, uh, and the third platoon leader were immediately shot. So I was standing right in between those two. Uh, Sean was just going over the small wall. And so he was shot in his side and, and, and Jimmy was shot in the, uh, in the buttocks. So we, we updated as soon as that happened, we're returning fire. We updated the medevac aircraft, and and I uh, told my FSO Ed Van Cura to to begin having CCA engage enemy targets as we identified them with our fire and, and two or three rounds. So so the fire team was now starting to see where the enemy was, and we were able to pass that up to the helicopters to start making those engagements. So we began. So all of this is going on. And as we're taking contact, we start hearing and seeing rounds impacting from our rear. And so uh, what, what, what happened was the Afghans, as they started hearing the contact, they just started firing. And so they were literally firing over our heads towards the structures. Um, and the, just Afga- the ANA, the ANA police. That's oh, right. Wow. That's right. Oh man. And so, so now, now I, at this point, I take a step back. I, I take a look, and I am near where these casualties are. So I have three casualties. One's pretty much patched up, and he's actually. I look over at him, and he's returning fire. This guy, you know, he's got shrapnel in his neck, and he's returning fire. Good portion of the force is pinned down in this semi-open area uh, because you know they just don't have a place to get cover. There are increasing levels of small arms. You got heavy machine gun fire. You got RPG fire. You got Afghans confused shooting over our head. You've got CCA making engagements into these buildings. And the way that the rounds are impacting, I I get the sense that we that our left flank, so to our south, because our other platoon is too far to the south to really get to us fast enough, we we essentially have an exposed flank. Okay, and so um, the the only the only thing I could see uh, to take the pressure off of uh, what was occurring uh, there in the middle, which was essentially some you know in some cases people getting too focused in on the casualty portion as opposed to um, the enemy to to take the pressure off of off of that event and get the pressure on uh, something else. And so I saw a well uh, further to my south, it's about 100 meters. And so I grabbed a fire team and and we uh, took off to that well. And essentially it was a 
dead sprint with covering fire to get to that well to reorient the enemy's fire onto that on uh, onto that element and be able to provide some fire to take the attention off of the treatment of the of the uh, um, of the of the casualties. Uh, okay. lo- longest probably longest run of my life probably looked really bad with the with the Kevlar <laughs> diaper on. Uh, <laughs> what uh, yeah, th- three guys just kind of waddling quickly through the desert. Um, what does so so you you move you wanted to move to the well to a get another a support by fire position up there, but B to also just divert some of the enemy attention and firepower away from where you're trying to treat now three or still two casualties. That's right. That's right. And so, um, so we, we, we took off, um, and made it there. And we, you know, we, we took, when we got there, you know, it wasn't as much cover as I, I, I wished I had, but there was a little, piece of terrain that sort of fell back off of the well to where a couple of the guys could get down there. And I was, I was right there at the, uh, at the well. What do you mean a little piece of terrain? So, Just so, a, so a dip of- yeah, it sort of dipped back, but you know, um, in our favor. So I'd say to the Eastern portion of the well, it, it, uh, it dipped down so that they would, they would not be exposed okay. uh, to the enemy. Um, now, um, so I think that that enabled Doc Doc uh, Doc Rudy and and others to reach reach Sean to work on him and and so um, how many medics did you have uh, with you? So uh, there were uh, there's at least one one to two per platoon. Uh, Doc Rudy was the senior; he was the company medic, um, and so he was the senior guy there moving with the headquarters element. Um, and so when I got when I got to the uh, to the why, I looked back in in the midst of all of this, and th- this is the part that struck me is when when Sean Brazos uh, was being treated, his his dog, uh, his name is Sicario, uh, one of the one of these Belgian Malinois. He he just went into full protection mode, and it's it's it is still it is still burned into my memory the way that he was biting and scratching and, you know, just doing everything he could to protect Sean to the best of his ability. Um, wow. Biting and scratching the medic. The, yeah. The, the, the medic, anyone who would try to get near him. Um, oh, wow. And so um, Seth Price, who is the Intel specialist, he was able to, to tackle uh, Sicario and sort of subdue him in order to, so that, um, uh, so that so that Doc Rudy could continue the treatment. Um, wow! So he's working on him. The the medevac is inbound. S- the starts to land, and the volume of fire from uh, from the west just elevates, starts hitting the the uh, helicopter. The helicopter takes off, won't land. What was um. What was even more striking to me is where Doc was laying, working on uh, Sean. It was sort of a break in the wall, such that he he was really exposing himself to um, to fire, and he didn't have an um, an option to move him, just based on you know just the sheer weight and everyone else mm-hmm. being um, involved with what was going on. When that volume of fire picked up i looked and instead of him trying to take cover somewhere or or doing something different 
Doc Rudy laid directly on top of Sean to protect him. You know, and so you, you know, you look at something like that and, and you, you, you realize, you know, just how special um, these, these guys are to, to, oh, yeah. um, to, to, you know, essentially say, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice myself to try to, to try to protect you um, in the midst of what's going on. So it's, 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 it's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. And so CCA continued to make, uh, make engagements west of our permission, uh, west of our position. Um, the second approach, the medevac was able to land, um, evacuates, uh, Sean Brazos and McNeil, Jimmy McGrath. He was, he was shot in the, in the, in the buttocks. He actually refused to be evacuated. It turned out he, his was, um, you know, more of a flesh wound across the buttocks. And he, he was, um, you know, absolutely tough, 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 tough PL. Um, he, he stayed on the ground and stayed through the rest of the operation. Um, um, unfortunately, uh, Sean, uh, uh, did, uh, did pass away. Um, uh, McNeil made a, made a full recovery. Um, and so, you know, after several of those engagements, um, uh, the enemy, uh, broke contact and, um, and at that point, um, the, you know, we had to reconsolidate uh, the men um, and get them, you know, back uh, back to where they could continue the clearance. Because remember, this is day three. We got we're, we're still going. This is not over. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we, we move into um, uh, a couple of different uh, gray putts and. You know, I'm I'm just watching, um, you know how how people are processing it and 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 uh, you know getting getting themselves kind of back into the game. Um, the the Kiowas, you know, after they make their engagements, um, they're uh, they're flying, they're literally flying over and throwing bottles of water and Gatorade down at us. You know, they're just going wherever they can find stuff because. You know, there's there's not a good way at this point where my XO he's about a couple, couple kilometers from us that he can really get to us, um, like like as quickly as he would need to. And so it, it you know it's just this scene of like in some cases water bottles exploding on the ground, um, <laughs> you know guys like running and trying to get water wherever they can, um, but just uh, just 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 really uh, just really incredible and there are kind of three things that, that I thought about as I was watching them um, following that engagement as I'm watching the guys. uh, I I really, you mean once you're sort of reconsolidating, right. right. Okay. Um, I, the first thing is I became uh, very aware of just how challenging that this deployment was going to be. Um, you know, this is month two of nine, um, and just what every platoon was seeing—not just this particular platoon, but it was just the the, the violence was was at a higher scale than than what uh, than what we're used to. And I mean, this is you know one that a number of commanders could probably identify with, but the, you know, this is day in and day out. Number two was. Uh, Watching the acts of bravery that day, it it um, 
it deeply humbled me. And, and frankly, um, I was, I was in awe, um, at what, um, what those men were willing to do for each other. Um, you know, as you know, you talk about what, what Doc Rudy did, what people were do were willing to do to expose themselves into the open to, to, you know, to take, take pressure off of, off of others to, to, uh, you know, to, to make them safer. And then number three, I, I just realized I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Uh, but right there, you know, just, just covered in dirt, sweat, adrenaline is still pumping, you know, ready to, ready to continue to go. Um, why is it, why is that? Cause you're not the first person that we've had on talk about having that sort of feeling in this moment of what should be stressful and anxiety inducing. And, um, it's, it, it seems like an irrational response, right? Yeah. When you've just gone through that to, to say, I want to be here, not, I want to be at home on my couch and not, you know, and safe. Yeah. Uh, why do you think you felt that? <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know that I have a, a a really insightful answer, but there's this there's this sense of of togetherness of of um, you know I, I often think that there's nothing uh, nothing more amazing than watching what someone will do to save the life of a friend, and I know there are different ways to say that, and uh, but but there's a sense of togetherness of of of, of demonstrating, um, and proving that, that you are willing to, um, to, to do this for, for your friend or for a, a fellow, uh, you know, a fellow infantryman or, or service member. It, there's, there's something about that. And it, it does, it, it, if, you know, it seems completely irrational, but, um, I, th- I think, I think a number of the guys would, would, uh, would identify with that. It's um, it's one of the frustrating things sometimes because we have words like esprit de corps and you know unit cohesion and you know talk about you know band of brothers or band of brothers and sisters. This there are all these words, these labels that we apply, but it's it's so hard to actually describe that feeling. There aren't words really to describe it because it is. I mean, it, it is something that again is a theme that keeps coming up in episodes that we're that we're covering is just the way that a unit comes together and. Uh, each person contributing in ways that if you didn't see it, you wouldn't have thought it was possible. Um, I, you know, I wish there was maybe a better way of conceptualizing it and, and, and making clear to people maybe who haven't experienced it. Um, So I want to ask a couple questions, if you don't mind, if we kind of revert to the story. So uh, was there a point because, you know, this was not the first time that you had had, you know, some incoming fire on this multi-day mission. Was there a point at which you realized, oh man, this is, this is different. Hmm. I, I think, I think the, um, that we hadn't really, we hadn't done an operation where we had to work with that many Afghans. And, and so Contr- how many? How many uh, were it, there? It, there were probably over over a hundred. I would I would think. I mean, and and so okay. what you, you know, and and you know, the split up in the you know in those different um, groupings, as I described earlier. But it's it's difficult to uh, control what actions they're going to take, um, you know, and and put you know potentially put put, uh, put the force at risk, you know, um, luckily that, 
you know, they were, uh, they were in a position where we, we didn't, we didn't really need them to, uh, they weren't really in a position to, to affect things, you know, certainly if they would have continued, uh, you know, firing, you know, we were able to get, get them to, to, to stop firing. But, um, that, that was a, that was a bit different. Um, what, what made it very different for me is when, when I could, when I sensed that the enemy was doing a couple of different things. One was fighting from structures with families in them. So, you know, we took contact on day two where we clearly saw the enemy firing from a compound and, and we were actually getting ready to destroy that compound. And, you know, they broke contact. We moved down to the compound and there was a family in there. And that's, that's in my experience, I just, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen that uh, very often. And then the second one was, you know, them sort of making a move towards that wall, you know, as they continued to, you know, I think they had a, a great defensive position and I think they were uh, sending a couple of people to, to try to get a, uh, to exploit that, that open flank. Okay. So uh, one of the other things that struck me as you're, as you're talking about this is um, that it's such a, you know, a perfect description of when we talk about, Know, friction in battle and just the complexity and chaos because you've got incoming fire then you've got an exposed flank you've got potentially dangerous friendly fire coming from from behind you're coordinating you've got medics on the ground working you're coordinating with your fso um you're coordinating with the um you know with air support medevac all of these things are going on you're trying to you're maneuvering one small element over to this well to try to get you know take up a different firing position all of these moving parts how do you deal with that when there's so much, uh, you know, stimuli? I suppose is it just a matter of training so much so that you're you're prepared for that, or is it a matter of kind of prioritizing in your head? All right, these are the this is the most important task. This is what I need to complete first, and then I move on to this, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, so I think I think it it's it's maybe some of some of uh, some of it all. Um, I think there is certainly. Um, in my mind, uh, what needs to happen right now? Um, you know, if, if nothing else happens, what, what do we need? What do we need to do now? We know we have to treat the casualties, but everybody doesn't have to treat the casualties. Um, we, we, we can't have a situation where, um, you know, people are, are so bunched around these casualties that, that we're going to get in a situation where, uh, we've got, eight or 10 casualties at this point. Um, what, what I've learned from fighting in Afghanistan over a number of years is in some cases you have to do things that the enemy doesn't expect. And I, I know that goes for, you know, any engagement, any, any, any battle, but they are very used to us. Uh, the enemy's very used to us doing the same thing over and over and over again. You know, like what? What do you mean? Uh, so, for example, if you are on a are on a path uh, with with a mine detecting a device, and you take contact, they know that your that our SOP or TTP is to spread out and, and get cover. And so they they'll deliberately place IEDs on places where you're going to naturally seek cover, and it works. I watched a uh, uh, an ANA member do that. And we essentially trained away from that to where you would take contact and essentially take a knee, you would spread out 
in a file, but you would not move off the path. And he was, he stepped off the path and was blown. His entire body was blown into a tree um, or part of his body was blown into a tree. Um, and, and that was sort of it for him. Um, and so, you know, they, they, in some cases will design these scenarios because they expect you to do something. And so, um, I, I don't think it's cool to run out into the open, um, uh, with, with, you know, two or three guys, but, but I do know that we gotta, we've got to get the attention off of, uh, off of what's happening in the center where we've got people exposed. And so yeah. in some cases, um, you know, you've, you've got to do things that, you know, the enemy, the enemy's not going to expect. And, and c- certainly it's uncomfortable, but, uh, okay. that's what needed to happen. So I think, um, we'll, we'll, we're about to wrap up, but I want to ask one kind of final question. Um, the next morning, you know, you, you've, 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 um, sort of, collected yourselves ready to move on. But that, you know, that evening you start, set up a patrol base, just like you have the past few nights. Um, the next morning as you're getting ready to move out again, what, what did it feel like? You know, um, I, I've got, I've got to say that, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that I, I processed that event until I, until I returned. Um, because I, because I felt as though, you know, we had, uh, so much in front of us that, um, I did not have, um, the capacity to deal with that. And so I think, um, there's, there's an element of, of trying to, trying to learn, Hey, you know, what, very quickly, what happened? How can we, how can we do better? But, uh, but, in, but, you know, people were ready, people were ready to go. I think, I think I was ready to go. Um, and I think some of these things, um, you know, oft, often they don't, they don't rear their heads the day after, or even the month after sometimes it's a year or years after. Sure. Um, and that, that's, um, if, if, uh, if I may, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, I think we we've got to continue to be champions of is is folks um, uh, taking the initiative and uh, learning and growing from from these these uh, experiences in combat and not not being ashamed of them. Um, this is yeah. this is something I did um, uh, writing a piece, uh, authoring a piece about my own battle with trauma and and being a champion. And I, and, and I will say that I was not a champion of, of guys going and seeking, uh, help. Now I, I certainly supported it, but I was not a champion of it. And so now over the years I've become a champion and I, I want people to, to believe that this is, this is a growth opportunity. This, this is not about weakness. And I, I still think we've got, we've got some stigma associated with with, uh, with people who go and, and, and try to grow from these, from these things that happen. It's, it's not normal to have to see some of the things that, that, uh, that young men and women see in combat, but we've got to, we've got to be champions because we got such a, a small population of, of folks who are, who are serving this nation. And we've got to, uh, you know, we've got to be ready for, for what, uh, for whatever comes at us. 
Well, Brian, thanks very much. That's uh, that's a you know an important and, and a, I think a powerful message, uh, and probably a good one to end on. One that will um, I'm I'm sure resonate uh, with some of our listeners, some of whom have had experiences like this, and some of whom haven't. But the importance of, uh, like you said, championing um, people, kind of taking care of themselves and and taking care of each other. So, Brian, thanks so much for joining and and sharing your story and 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 some of the lessons from it. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.